Okay, we're back in. Yes, yes, yes. Here we are. Another week. More heat. More heat. The industry's getting hotter than ever. Every week it just seems like it is burning. Bombarded. Into a supernova. <laughs> is there going to be a black hole? I think eventually that's how that's how hot it's going to get. Someone's going to get sucked in. Well, they are. It seems like things are very active right now in the industry. And speaking of industry, our industry guest... I said guest, but I'm going to say guest... <laughs> is the amazingly talented producer known for his work, among other things, uh, Nickelodeon's I Am Frankie. Producer Eric Gennard is our guest today. Eric. Yes. How you doing, man? (laughs) He's great. He's a longtime producer here in Miami. We won't get into it at all uh, until you actually hear it, but he had such an interesting journey into the industry. you got to hear this journey. I mean, he really gave it all. Oh, yes. He opened that heart. Mm. What you got to do? It's all or nothing, right? All or nothing. No risk, no reward. Go That's bigger. what this industry is. Go big, go home. Any cliche you want to use, <laughs> it all applies. You got one choice. Yes. You don't got to go home, but you got to go somewhere else. You better bring it. Got to bring it. Man, Joker. It keeps bringing it. Joker is amazing. Uh, we had mentioned that it had fallen to number two, uh, just under Maleficent, but it was a strong number two versus a weak number one. So yeah, Joker, we've been talking about it for the past couple weeks. Maleficent gave it a run for its money and was, briefly, for one week, number one at the box office. But again, a strong number two against a weak number one. Yeah. And what happened last weekend? Boom. Flipped. <laughs> just barely. <laughs> I think it was an 18.9 for Joker versus an 18.5 million take for Maleficent domestically. So that uh, that flipped again. Yeah, but man, what legs. The R-rated gift that keeps on giving. Now the biggest R-rated movie in history. Number one R-rated film of all time. <sighs> wow. Will it hit a billion? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just it's incredible how it's carried week to week. Uh, I don't see it slowing down enough. to. I mean, maybe now that so many other of these prestige movies are starting to hit theaters and other marketing campaigns for the holidays, Frozen 2, all that stuff is going to start. You know, obviously not that it's yeah. the same demographic. That you're going <laughs> but it doesn't make a difference when you have an animated biggie like that. You know, it sucks up a gonna... lot of attention. Right. Right. But, you know, and I talked about this before because, you know, I just came back from Europe, you know, a couple of weeks ago. But looking at the international marketing of these films, you know, I did London, Paris, Switzerland, Italy. And to feel the marketing of all of these movies, I can't say that Joker was marketed more heavily than these other two movies, Gemini, Maleficent, which I I feel were marketed even more heavily. But to see Joker, which is like 50, 60 million dollar movie. Mm hmm. To just dominate. Right. You know, is that says a lot. It says it. I think it's a testament just to the quality of the filmmaking and the storytelling and to Warner Brothers' credit of taking that chance and really telling a different kind of superhero or supervillain movie that we haven't really seen before. We've seen it in other formats. You know, obviously the film is largely inspired by movies like Taxi Driver and uh, The King of Comedy, right? So to see a movie like Joker and credit again to Warner Brothers for taking the chance. 
because yeah. again we've seen this type of film obviously the, the film largely inspired by some of the Scorsese movies of the late 70s early 80s but for them to really take that and and put it within the universe of the superhero genre was very interesting yeah and this is something for Scorsese to come out against superhero movies comic based movies and fantasy based movies you know that says a lot there's been yeah heavy criticism particularly by Scorsese and you know he he did to be fair I don't know if he was singling out every movie or if he was targeting Joker specifically. I don't think so. It was more uh, directed at the Marvel franchise. But yes, he he seems to think that the superhero genre, like at least what we've seen, particularly from Marvel over the last decade or so, as being more uh, what he calls a theme park than That's what he called it. That's right. And, you know, there's something that Joker was an homage to his movies and to his style of filmmaking. And you could feel it in the movie, really. Interesting you know? timing, yeah, that he would say that as Joker's coming out, you know, you have those clear references to your previous work uh, and and having Robert De Niro in the film as well. And, and then to sort of come out with that now, I'm wondering if he just kind of felt like, I don't know, you know? Well, it's a battle of screens, too. Right. It's become a battle of screens and, and in the bigger sense, a battle of eyeballs. Correct. And to be fair, he has his movie coming out, The Irishman, which is a huge Netflix production. So he has reason to speak, you know, reason to, you know, sometimes these little mini controversies. I don't think anything other than, you know, it's someone's opinion about cinema and that it just adds to, you know, the PR factor. I think it's mm. it's intentional in that way as well, because it just creates more buzz. Yeah. But when you have an icon, you know, a legend. Yeah. I mean, his name is as big as any studio, you know, or any media conglomerate. Yeah. Scorsese alone. So when he speaks, you know, people listen. So and let's see if he speaks to this generation, because, you know, Netflix tracks things a bit differently than the old box office. Yeah. But, you know, they're already talking about Irishman, Oscar buzz and, you know, those things. So I think it's going to do phenomenally well. Let's see. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be an exciting day. But first, as always, Screen Heat Miami is brought to you by Kajik Multimedia. Cinevision. Cinevision? Cinevision. <laughs> ah, I'm That's going to be the running joke. <laughs> <laughs> when is JL going to say it correctly? Cinevision. Chemical. And the Miami Media and Film Market with our co-hosts, Kevin Sharpley. I'm and JL Martinez. And we're here doing we it. go. Here we go. Eric Gennard. A lot to up. talk about. Oh, my gosh. So much. Eric Gennard is coming up shortly. And now we have to talk about some other interesting things first. And, you know, I think it's apropos. And I'm, I'm sad to report, uh, if many of you may have heard already, that the legendary producer Robert Evans passed away this past weekend. Yeah. Such a juggernaut. My gosh. You know, again, someone like similar to Eric's story came from a completely different industry fell into the world of acting and found his passion really being on the producing side. Yeah. Ran a studio. Ran Paramount Pictures. Not Paramount Pictures now or 20 years ago, but during the times of The Godfather. Yeah. He really... uh, He shepherded that project. He's the one that really wanted Francis Coppola to direct. But part of the controversy being that he also did not want Al Pacino to star. No, I didn't know the Al Pacino part. That's right. That really? was one of the big epic battles that Francis Coppola apparently had with Robert Evans at the time. They had many sort of creative battles. And ultimately, I think in one of his memoirs, Robert said that that on most occasions, Francis Coppola was right. 
On most occasions, that's most. right. You can't give it all. Yes. One thing that apparently, and you know, there's two sides to every story, but one thing that a Robert Evans did ultimately support was a longer film. He said, you know, don't stick to the two hours. There's so much good stuff here. Go long. Yeah. And you have to give it up for, he was a champion and that's throughout his entire career, mm-hmm. you know, but someone who cha- champions the story. Yes. And champions what best benefits the story. So, and that's in every iteration of his career. Sure. So, and his ups and downs, you know, this has been a roller coaster of a career that this man has had, legendary, but tremendous swings and misses and hits. But his, I think, what what is his legacy, even more than all the amazing films that he produced, including Chinatown, was his legacy of that old school Hollywood just push, don't take no for an answer, just constantly in the mix, never giving up. And, you know, he earned his moniker and and the kid stayed in the picture for yeah. many, many years. Yeah, that's right. So it's so RIP and we have to give another RIP to another one of my heart in my heart actors, John Williams. Everybody mm-hmm. remembers John Williams from you know, he's been in so many, many, many films and TV shows, but Friday, mm. the cult classic. Yeah. He helped to define that movie, which is a movie that launched a lot of careers. Yeah. You know, it's Pulp Fiction-esque. Yeah. And so we have to give another R.I.P. John Witherspoon. Mm. This is an actor that has been in many, many films and TV shows, a storied career. But a lot of people remember him from the legendary cult classic Friday. His turn in Friday helped to define that film. Yeah. And that's a film that launched so many careers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Chris Tucker and uh, what was it? Ice Ice Cube. Cube. Yeah. Ice Cube produced. So that also helped to launch Ice Cube as a producer. Yeah. So and it was such a a potent mix of talent that melded so well. It definitely was, you know, one of the standouts of that particular movie. But, you know, we have to give, you know, an RIP to these two legends that passed this week. Yeah, no, definitely. They left their mark, an indelible mark on the industry, as they say. Yes, but we have to keep going. That's right. So much is happening in the industry. Let's let's get into the streaming wars. Yeah, how are we going to fit all this in? HBO Max. I don't know. HBO Max. They're fitting everything in. It seems like they've been the most active of the major streamers uh, that are that are just kind of shaking things out. But there's been a lot going on. And we wanted to touch on something which is regarding uh, the Game of Thrones creators. Yeah. So apparently they were slated to direct three Star Wars movies for Disney. That's a big deal. Big deal. Except now they're not. (laughs) Now they're not. (laughs) So that deal is no more that trilogy is done and so they basically said that they loved the idea they were so inspired by the universe of star wars and growing up with those films but that they really needed to focus all of their attention on their netflix deal wars streaming wars star wars but the stars are the talent they are fighting over these stars the streaming wars are in full battle mode. That's right. Apropos that, I, in my opinion, the streaming wars is our current Game of Thrones in terms of our- It is. Every week, it's something else. Yes. You HBO Max, they announced their price point. That's right. They did. 
1499, right? 1499. Starting in May of next year, there are some in uh if you are an AT&T subscriber, apparently you will get it at least for a year free so long as you're subscribed to HBO in some capacity and anyone who is currently subscribed I believe to HBO now. Yeah, that I mean that's great because I'm subscribed to HBO and then it was really I just got a new iPhone, so People who get new Apple products then get that subscription to Apple TV. So I guess I'm already in there, even though, you know, the iPhone was not the cheapest thing on the planet. Right. And, um, you know, paying for HBO is, you know, having cable is is not so, you know, but getting those for free is, is a bonus. But I just want to see how it all plays out with people who have to a la carte it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, now you're talking about, let's say you are one of those a la cartes. Now, you know, this is $14.99 is one of the highest price points I think we've seen thus far for a streamer. It's the highest. It is the highest. So, you know, and that considering that Netflix went up a couple bucks as well. So now you're talking $14.99, $12.99. If you want Disney Plus, that's another seven bucks a month. So it's starting to feel like a cable bundle all over again. Yeah, if you add them all up, add them all up. It's a it's a hundred bucks. That's and then plus, if you want access to live television and sports, that's another subscription. Basic cable. Yes. Then you got to pay for basic cable too. So the, those all those things, you know, and and it affects your pocketbook. The whole idea of, of cable cutting, particularly for our millennials and post millennials, was that they were saving, but now it seems if they want access to all this great content, once again, you're gonna have to pay up. Yeah. So. South Park. South you got to pay for South Park a lot because they paid for South Park. Warner Media paid five hundred million dollars for the South Park library. Boy, oh boy! <laughs> I think that was Warner Media saying something like "Respect my authority." <laughs> I think that's exactly right. <laughs> Respect my authority. And they're gonna want to have that return. They're gonna want to have a return on that investment. Yeah, a big return on that investment. You killed Netflix, you bastard! <laughs> <laughs> but you know everybody's battling over they are. the new content, the new IP, the content creators, and the old IP. People are pulling in their IP, mm-hmm. IP yeah. that was scattered around other portals. They're pulling all that IP in. Yeah, and you know I just think about Disney. I remember when they first announced, what was it, $4.5 billion they paid Lucas for Star Wars? Yeah, it was around four, and then they paid another four for Marvel. Yeah. So they've made that money back. They they have, but now they're spending it again and even more because they need to compete and they're slated to spend something around sixteen billion dollars on content next year. And that doesn't include sports. If you add sports like ESPN and all that stuff, it's yeah. closer to twenty three billion. Yeah. That's by far the most of any of the major media companies that's gonna be spending. And so it's it's going to be interesting to see if that gamble pays off. But, you know, again, their CEO said it's the most important investment in the history of the company, essentially, for them. Oh, yeah. So and it's yeah. huge. And, you know, not to knock Netflix because they're they're going to fight back and they're they're not going away anytime soon. They are sort of the ones that created this whole mess in the first place. <laughs> and they're they're definitely not going away anytime soon. And I think that they're banking a lot um, on their talent, particularly their comedians. It seems like that's such a huge niche for them. I recently saw Dolomite. That's pretty much putting Eddie Murphy back on the spotlight. He's going to, the rumors about him doing a huge stand-up special for Netflix and so much going on with Seinfeld and obviously the whole Seinfeld library 
going over to Netflix and they're banking a lot, I think, on comedians, edgy content. You know, they already have Dave Chappelle. They've got Chris Rock. So, but I did want to talk about this comedian connection mm. and content in general, right? Because you know, you think about it, this content war, this content battle, really has seeped into so many industries in every industry. Right. I was reading that Eddie Murphy, a big part of his decision to make the comeback, was because of Obama. Really? President Obama did not hear that story. Yes. There was an article in Variety, and Eddie Murphy said that President Obama asked him to jump back into the ring. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And just think about it. He got a Netflix deal. Have you ever heard of the president having a Netflix deal? Right. Obama has a Netflix deal. Well, he is in the industry now, so it's, he's... Yes. He's hustling out there like everybody else. <laughs> I don't think he has to hustle too much. Well, you never know <laughs> in this business. But everyone's entering the fray. Everybody. Yeah. It's yeah. And I think it speaks to what is actually at the core of all this. And, and I, I think we've touched on it briefly before, which is that media is the driving force of every industry now. Yeah, that's right. Irrespective. Yeah. You know, what is Amazon except this sort of huge global digital flea market? And those people are spending six billion dollars on content just to get you to sign up for Prime. Yeah. Yeah. How do you get people to look at your stuff? It's a lost leader, essentially. They're like, this is our marketing is winning Emmys and Oscars and the Mrs. Maisels and, you know, a slew of other major productions. You know, we're not talking infomercials or YouTube how to videos. We're literally talking major, major Hollywood style productions. Yeah. Now buy, buy a vacuum cleaner. Right. Now, exactly. And the whole point of that is with two day free shipping. <laughs> That's right. Or next day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is something I want to talk about after the jump, after the interview, which is, you know, how this battle is playing out even with talent. Because I was looking at uh, Instagram and Jason Momoa popped up and he was showing the big New York uh, Times Square poster and digital marketing for his new show C, which is on Apple TV. Mm. But I know they're about to go into production on Aquaman mm. coming up pretty soon. Right. Aquaman being Warner Media, C being Apple TV. So and C really is a flagship for Apple TV. I mean that's the show that's really out there. So just imagine this. C versus Aquaman Warner Media versus Apple. And I'm interested to see how all this plays out because our media companies going to want to share the talent. Are right. they going to want to play in the sandbox together? I don't think, I mean, yeah, it seems like it's going to go back to, you know, this old saying, everything old becomes new again. In the old studio days, you did have talent under exclusive contracts for Warner Brothers, for Disney, for United Artists, and, and they rarely shared. And if they did, it was a contractual negotiation between the studios. Mm -hmm. After that, you know, everything became indie and everyone worked for everybody else and it didn't really matter. But now it seems like it, it does matter again. Yeah. So we'll talk about that after the jump. Yes, let's jump into it. This great interview with Eric Gennard. We hope you enjoy it, and we'll be right back. Oh, we're rolling. Okay. So here we are with the founder of Paradiso Pictures and executive producer extraordinaire, Mr. Eric Gennard. What's up, guys? Yeah. How you doing? Thanks Thank for you having for me. Thank you for being here. Oh, no, thanks for having me, man. You guys are doing a great podcast. I love oh. it. Love <laughs> it. I'm lucky to be here. Thank you. 
Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you. So, you know, we want to jump right into it. You know, as we were mentioning, you know, we, we really like to talk a little bit about the personal journey of our guests first. So mm. where are you from originally? How did you get in, you know, mm. even before you got involved in the industry? Where, mm. where, where, are, you, where are your origins? Uh, born and raised in Miami. Whole family's from here. Um, brought up in a, in a Cuban house uh, where working in the TV and film industry is frowned upon. So we never really, it was never really something that I, I pursued early on. Um, but I always loved everything having to do with television, with films. So I studied acting when I was a kid. I did local theater down here for several years. And I just did, uh, took acting lessons and just uh, in whatever, you know, trying to find a way to like just be in touch with what was going on going on, you know, in that world, even if it was something that felt like it was kind of out of reach, you know, being in Miami, it always kind of feels out of reach, you know, right. I, I think for, I think most people will agree with that. It ebbs and flows, you know, with us, with the, with the industry here. Yeah, it does. But I think that when you're a, when you're a young kid and you're wanting to start out and, and, you know, move in this direction as a career, whether you're in college or what have you, people typically don't think, okay, well, I can do this in Miami. You know, everyone thinks they have to move to Los Angeles or they have to move to New York. And if they don't, then they're just not going to be able to have any kind of success or any kind of, you know, steady career, which is just not the case. So, um, so yeah, I, I didn't start in the industry. I mean, I, I, you know, went to high school here in Miami, went to school here in Miami, worked full-time all through college. So I was in the seven-year college plan, you know, <laughs> basically. And, uh, and it's funny, I, as much as I wanted to do what I'm doing now, um, we had an opportunity to go into a company together, my family and I, when I was young, I was 21, 20 turning 21. And we started a, a, a company that had nothing to do with what we do in this industry. But at the time, as much as I wanted to do what I'm doing now, I also wanted to make money. And I also wanted to make a living. I was always very entrepreneurial. And I always had a, a strong business sense, even though I had the creative side as well that I wanted to always explore. Uh, I kind of got sidetracked for a certain number of years. And we started this business. And it was a, it was a company that sold all types of consumer products, but in particular consumer products for the Latin household, things that were commonly used in the kitchen and in the house. And it started off as a tiny little mom and pop company. And by the time I left the company about 10 years later, almost 12 years later, actually, um, I couldn't see another one of these pots or pans or little Cuban <laughs> coffee makers. Like I was just ready to throw it out of the building. I just could not stand it. But by the time I left, we were selling to every major retailer in the United States. We had, you know, I don't know how many times over we had increased our sales. And so the, the business was a very successful company. And, but it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. So um, I decided at that point in my, you know, young 30s with, uh, a, you know, two kids at home, you know, a, a newborn and one that was like three and a half years old. Uh, hey, I'm going to sell my part in this company and I'm just going to go start my production company. Hmm. And everyone thought I was on drugs. Everyone's like, what's wrong with you? You have this successful business. You have... You've built this over the years with your brother and with, you know, your father and your grandfather. You guys have this great company going. But um, I was just unhappy because I really wanted to be doing what I'm doing now. And um, and it's, it's funny how I think, you know, you tell people you have to follow your passion and everything else. I have a fatal flaw 
that if I'm not doing something that I enjoy, I always work hard in everything I do. But I know that when I have passion for something, it takes my work to another level. It just always does. And I think it does for most people. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so for me, I just felt like I, I have to find a way to do this. And, you know, thankfully my wife, God bless her, was was uh, was supportive. I wouldn't have done it if she wasn't supportive because there wasn't a person, I think, in my family and almost every one of my close friends literally thought I was insane. And they just, uh, they really didn't understand. When people don't understand you're, when you're making a decision that you know, you somehow know it's the right decision and you somehow know it's going to work itself out if I, you know, bust my ass and I work hard and I, you know, start looking, lo- you know, big picture and I start taking these baby steps to get there. Um you have the belief in it, but people from the outside probably won't understand it, especially if you're coming from a successful situation going to a startup, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, so that was tough because I, the only, the only real support I had for a while was, was my wife. And then little by little others that were tight with me started to understand why I was doing what I was doing. And, you know, I, I went from managing, you know, 50 plus employees at this company to being a volunteer PA mm. on shoots just so that I could see what goes on a film set. Mm. When someone referred to what a gaffer was, I remember I heard the word the first time and I'm like, what's a gaffer? Is that like a something you use, like a product on set? I'm like, no, 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 that's the gaffer. <laughs> and they point at the guy, I'm like, oh, okay, that's the guy. Uh, and then they explained. And so I kind of felt like as, as much of an of a, um, ego hit that as that was I felt like I, I need to inundate myself here and I need to understand how everyone works and how this whole how all the cogs in the machine function together and so um, you were in your early 30s at this point yeah I was 30 33 when I did this and wow. a, P, a PA yeah Volunteer PA. Volunteer PA. No, the first couple of gigs, I didn't get paid. I was just, I, I was like asking people to find a way to get me in. I'm like, look, if they already crewed in, can I just, I'll get in. I'll help for a day. I'll do whatever. So obviously I had people who were a lot younger than me with a lot less experience in the, in the corporate world and in managing people and organization telling me what to do, which it wasn't, it wasn't easy at the time. It was a, it was a, a tough pill to swallow. But, um, but I also felt like I had to do it, you know? So, you know, when I explained to someone that I was volunteering or I was doing this, you know, they'd look at you at the face like, what are you doing? You know? And I just knew that that's what I had to do to hmm. like, to figure out the process and to kind of understand and start. Cause I knew once I understood the dynamic of how everything worked, I knew I'd be good at it I, I just knew from my experience managing an organization managing people that I that once I got there I felt like I couldn't be comfortable and I was confident I'd get there but um but it took a little bit and I I PA'd in a number of projects I PA'd in a bunch of commercials and stuff and and uh I was doing other things at the same time I was a script reader for Ben O'Dell Ben O'Dell runs Three Pots Studios with Eugenio Derbez right. right now but Ben O'Dell at a company years ago in Miami called Panamax Films used to uh, just get scripts from all the major agencies in Spanish from Latino writers and I was in Miami I was here I reached out to him you know cold called him one day went to his office 
month, he gave me like a pile of scripts. He's like, read these and give me coverage on these. And I had to figure out, okay, well, what the hell is coverage? And then I had to go read online and see what it was. And because I wanted to just see what I can do in the office, how I can help, whatever. Um, and again, this was all volunteer. I wasn't getting paid for anything. So... Um, I did this because I thought, okay, well, this is another avenue. Maybe I'll learn how the production company works on the side of optioning scripts, putting together these films and all these things. So when I went in there, I didn't expect to become a reader, you know, which is essentially what I was. And I did that for about a year. I probably read... 50 plus scripts, you know, over that year at least. Um, I gave him coverage for a bunch of stuff. And he liked my sensibility, you know, on the scripts that he had given me the first time I went. And I think that's why he told me, okay, you're hired, you know, but I'm not paying you. But you can come in and work right. and you, I'll give you these scripts and you do this. Um, but, you know, that lesson taught me what a good script was, what a bad script was. Because when I'd go give him a bad script, you know, he oftentimes wouldn't read it, but there are occasions that he'd read like the first 10 pages. He's like, oh yeah, this sucks. I mean, this is this is no good because of this. This is not starting this way. We're not getting right into the story immediately. We're not getting into the crux of what, what you know, this character's arc is going to be about and what have you. We don't know anything in the, in the first 10 pages. So he kind of helped teach me what development was. And, and and that was just random. I didn't know anybody in this industry when I started. I didn't know a single person, you know. Um, so I started doing that. And then eventually it got to a point where probably within six months of me doing this, I started producing for other people down here locally in South Florida. So I was producing for different commercial houses. Um line producing for them essentially I was good with numbers I was good managing people so they would I would essentially be the producer in the job at X company you know mm -hmm. and after a couple of years of doing that and seeing what all these folks were making on these jobs and what I was getting paid on these jobs and I was producing and running the whole thing I thought well crap I'm in the wrong line of work I need to be doing what these guys are doing I need to be the one securing you know these productions and these clients and these things and anyone knows in South Florida in particular um, you know more than anything there's a lot of opportunities for commercial work you know if you're going to manage photo shoots manage commercial work you know branded content a lot of that happens here there's a lot of business here in that sense um, because of all the Hispanic agencies that are in town that advertise throughout the United States and Latin America so that was the first route I took where I started to just work directly with ad agencies and and um, sort of working directly with networks as well. And uh, I always felt like I, I needed, even though I was just producing promos for different networks, whether it was for a new show or just, you know, brands that companies that advertise with them frequently, they would want to, you know, produce a commercial for them, you know, that would air on the network or whatever. Um, I started producing all that type of content. And I always felt in my mind, I was always thinking, and I'd get this all the time from people in the industry down here, but why are you working with the TV networks? The budgets are low, or you should be trying to get into the ad agencies and more in, in that world. And I did. I worked a lot with the ad agencies as well. But I always felt like if I can establish a good relationship at a network, it might lead to something else at a network at some point. Maybe, maybe not. So I just felt like, let me at least plant some seeds in a couple of networks and hope that I can eventually reap the benefits of it one way or the other so um 
a couple years into that process, I started working with Viacom on, I started producing uh, promos for their shows. Whether it was a digital series for one of their shows or, or, or an opening for one of their shows or, or promo content for one of their shows, I started uh, creating promos for them. And then I was producing them occasionally, I was directing them, and I was, I was doing that for several years. And I always knew in my mind, I'm like, the only people in South Florida that are producing general market content are the folks at Viacom, specifically the folks at Nickelodeon. Because they're the only ones in Miami at the time they were doing that. So I thought, I got to find a way to get in here somehow. So I eventually got in. It took me about 18 months and about a dozen coffees and lunches (laughs) you know, uh, to get there. But I finally started to produce promos for them. And once they saw the work we were doing and once I had kind of, you know, uh, I'd gained their trust and um, and they trusted us with those projects, I started poking at, you know, at, at a couple of people there. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I just want to I want to get a timetable on this because I remember when they built that studio and Viacom. It was a couple of years before that. So okay. it, it was I probably started doing their promos for them in 2013 to 2014, mm-hmm. probably. Um, by that point, we had only done, uh, we had done a ton of commercials for different people over the years. Um, we had had the good fortune of producing a movie for Showtime Networks um, that we produced during Hispanic Heritage Month. It was airing during Hispanic Heritage Month mm. for them. Um, and then we, a couple of years later, did a, a film for HBO. These are both shorts that we did, a short film for Showtime, a short film for HBO. And then otherwise, we had just been doing a ton of commercial content. So... Um, so by 2013, more or less, late 2013, early 2014, we started producing promos. And it took forever to get in. And it's just the process. You know, it's when, when you're cold calling someone and you don't have a relationship and you don't have anything else. You, you have to be, you, know, you can't take no for an answer, but you also have to know, at least the way that I see it, I think you have to know what it will take to get a yes. Because if, if you see after a while that you're just not getting any progress, you have to let it go or you're a nuisance and then you won't get anywhere. You right. know? So it took me some time to get to that point. Um, I finally got there. And once I was there for a couple of years, I started poking and prodding. And I'm like, hey, what if you give us a chance to do a TV show? You know, we, we do great work for you here, here, here. And I really wanted them to trust us with the show because I knew that I knew that the team would do a great job with it and I just I was ready for it at that time already I think I felt comfortable and confident that we had enough experience that we can manage anything that would happen on the set of a a TV show and uh, credit to them they gave us an opportunity you know uh, the good folks there you know JC Acosta Gigi Gomez you know Miriam Lucio they really you know Carla Gomez at the time uh, you know she was the first person to sit with me and have a cup of coffee for 10 minutes mm-hmm. and then from there it just went from there and so they finally gave us a chance to do a show and we produced the international version of an MTV show called Ridiculousness now that show in English is hysterical and it's a silly show it's just a it's a show Rob Deerdeck does the show it's a show about a host and a couple of guest host and the guest star that come in and watch funny videos and make jokes about the funny videos and the crazy things that people do so we had a chance to produce their international versions in Portuguese and in Spanish and um, we 
produced. Uh, we ended up producing two seasons. We ended up producing for each for each region. Um, we produced a total of sixty episodes for them um, during twenty sixteen, and then. Um, in 2017, we had uh, a show that came up through MTV as well. They were so happy with what we did there. We did a show for them called Swipe Date. We had a great time on the show. We did 15 episodes of the show. Um, and then, you know, Quint, at the same time, simultaneously, um, or right before that, actually, a few months before that show, we had produced and directed promo campaigns for a Spanish version of a show they had called I Am Frankie in, in Latin America. And I went in and produced and directed the promos and they went really well. They were really happy with it. And I heard from someone somewhere in the building that they were going to be looking at possibly doing an English version of the show in the States. So I started poking and prodding and just asking, who can I talk to about this? We'd love to get the opportunity to at least throw our hat in the ring, you know? And... Um, and then we went in a direction where they had a production model that they were managing all their English shows in South Florida, like if they were producing a novella for a Spanish network. So I'm sure you guys know those those are it's a different production model altogether, right? Yeah. It's, it's six days a week. It's it's uh, you know twelve to fourteen hour days. It's whatever you know number of weeks the shoot is, and it's a grueling schedule. It's a lot of episodes, a and it's a lot of episodes. Yeah. Non-union, non-union as well. It's union now, but not it was not. But it's non-union so, yeah, before. So they just keep right. working and working and working. So it's a different animal, and so you know, uh, and and I saw the shows they had been producing, and I just felt like everything from. Something as simple as, you know, the directors of photography they were using, the cameras they were using, um, how they were managing their schedules, you know, with kids, you know. I, I kept seeing everything and I thought, there's an opportunity here, you know. So I, we went in and pitched a completely different production model for them that was a little more expensive than what they were shooting at the time. But I felt like giving their crew and their, and their cast weekends back... Still finding a way to adhere to certain um, uh, financial realities that they were accustomed to, but also, you know, finding a model that would make the project more efficient and give us a better yield on the quality that we were producing. So, thankfully, they they gave us the opportunity and they agreed. Hey, let's 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 give that a shot. So we 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 ran that model the first season. We produced twenty episodes. Um, the network was thrilled. The cast was thrilled. Everyone was like, "Hey, I have my weekends. Hey, I can actually <laughs> right. recharge for Monday." You yeah. know, and um, you know the show thankfully was broadcast in over a hundred countries. It was it was uh, one of the top rated shows for that year, and um, and so we were fortunate that. It went so well, and um, and then we had a, a season two come up as well. We did a season two of the show, and uh, we did twenty two episodes of that one as well. And that one did really well too. Um, and during that year as well, in, in twenty eighteen, we we did a um, uh, we produced a pilot for MTV 
that didn't go to air. Um, uh, it, was, it went through so many title changes. I think it was High School Bake Off at the end. Uh, and it was a fun show. It was a fun pilot. It had a great, you know, team. I assume that was cooking, not marijuana, right? Yes, <laughs> definitely. It was definitely cooking. And uh, and there were moms on set, so it was definitely cooking. Hey, there's some moms that bake. They, they, they do. They do. But no, these, well, and they may have, but not when they were on yeah, set. Um, right. So we... So we got that pilot, and we did season two of the show, and then um, I started looking at kind of evolving the business now where I felt, okay, well, now we've been producing these shows, but these weren't shows that we had created. These were shows that were brought to us, ideas that were brought to us, IPs that they owned. And I, so, so for me, the next stage as a producer was, okay, well, I need to start owning some of this IP. What, what is IP? In, in, in intellectual property. So basically what we're doing right now is we're, um, I've been over the last year and a half just, you know, talking to different publishing houses, you know, and I've made a few relationships in a couple of the bigger ones, um, you know, reading the trades, reading the blacklist, you know, going through, you know, the Nichols Fellowship writers, going through, you know, a bunch of writing publications for novels, Publishers Weekly, so on and so forth, Kirkus, to find properties that are marketable, have commercial potential, you know, and kind of fit what we're trying to do, which is more YA, you know, teenager content, young adult content, you know, middle school content. It's kind of the world we're trying to live in for now, at least. Right. Um, it made sense for us because we had done Frankie, you know, it did so well at Nickelodeon. So we thought, why not? Why don't we piggyback this and start going in that direction? You know? Sure. So, uh, so that's kind of where we're at right now in terms of the, what we're doing there. We have a, you know, a ton of stuff we're doing with different properties that we've bought. Um, and we can get into some of that if you guys want to. It's oh, to definitely. You. But yeah. um, we, um, we, we bought the rights to a book called Don't Date Rosa Santos. And it's, uh, it's a romantic comedy coming of age story of three uh, Cuban women hmm. um, who live in the United States who are cursed by love and the ocean. And we, I bought the rights to it. I, I, I read the book. I loved the book. Really charming book. Um, thought it had a lot of potential. Loved the fact that there was three strong female characters. Um, you know, bought the rights to it. Went out to Sierra Ramirez. Sierra is the lead actress on a show called Good Trouble on Freeform. And um, she was in the Fosters on the show called The Fosters for years and super talented actress. So we were able to attach her to the project early on. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, from there, we took it to Freeform and Disney Plus because of her relationship with them. Oh, wow. Kind of always thinking that Disney Plus is a good home for it. And, you know, it's not supposed to happen like that so quickly, I guess. Uh, right. The negotiations, negotiations, I shouldn't say that. The negotiations with Disney Plus is, you know, like, like any negotiation with any network, it's an eternity, you know, to get it done. But... Um, but they were, you know, one of the first people we took it out to, and they loved it, and they wanted to come on board. So now we're adapting it. We're in the process of bringing on a writer soon to adapt it and hopefully go into production in 2020. Oh, wow. Nice. And uh, it's a project and as a feature film, uh, something that we would be producing ideally in Florida. Um, 
because it is a Florida-based story. Mm. Um, and, and part of that was not, I wasn't selfishly looking for a Miami story or a Florida story, but the fact that it was a Florida story was nice and because it was something that I, I wanted to do in Florida if we could. Right. Bring the opportunity here, bring the work here if we could. So um, we've been really fortunate. And then, you know, that has opened up the doors to you know, other meetings and other projects that we're pitching right now as well. So, uh, so thankfully, knock on wood, it's, it's, it's good. Things are going well. Wow. That's, that's a heck, heck of a story. What a journey. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's funny cause you mentioned Disney plus and we talk a lot about the streamers on the podcast and how that's kind of disrupted the whole game, especially in the past few years. Obviously, you know, Disney plus is coming out very soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Apple plus is chasing right behind them, HBO max. So as a producer now that's exploring, uh, mm-hmm. these options, you know, do you see a lot more opportunity now for content creators like yourself than there were before when there were just basically mm-hmm. the traditional networks or the pay cable and the that kind of thing. I think there's I think there's 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 a lot of opportunities. I think that there's a bit of a double-edged sword when it comes to uh, on the producer side specifically. Uh, the positives are I think that there are a lot more opportunities uh, to sell content. I feel content to some degree is getting a little watered down in some areas mm. um, because so many places need so much. Right. Um, that I think inevitably there's going to be in some instances a drop in quality. Like you can say, hey, you know, Netflix produced this great show or this great TV, you know, or this great film. But if you dig deep into the original productions, not everything is great. You know, not everything is is, is that tight and that top notch because you got to produce so much of it. So I think that the good thing is, is there's a lot of opportunities. Um, I think that what I think producers and I'm, seeing more and more in the meetings I've had is that um, the financial elements of, of, of a company, of a producer, of what a production company makes on these projects now has decreased significantly, especially with the streamers, because they're not um, adhering to the prior models that all the traditional networks had, all the primetime cable, you know, all the primetime networks had and all the, you know, the, the ownership that you had in the project and the royalties and that you can receive later down the line, you know, um, on these TV shows, when you had a successful TV show, um, you know, you, you can make a lot of money and it sets you up in a way where then you can go develop a ton of other projects and do a lot more, you know, work and pitch a lot more pro- projects. And now what I think I'm, I'm, I've been reading and I'm seeing it with my own deal with, with, with the Disney Plus is... There's no back end on any of these streaming networks at all. It's gone. It's 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 history. Um, if you're established, you may be able to negotiate some kind of buyout, some kind of an additional fee because you're not going to get a back end, and you may be able to put some type of clause into your agreement that at one point down the line, you can get paid X bonus if the show's still running, you know? So so, so that's the negative of it. But I mean, you know, if you're trying to get work out there and you're trying to pitch projects out there, so many people need content that, you know, going through Facebook, going through, you know, other places are going to start doing more and more. YouTube obviously has been producing shows. I mean, you know, things that they didn't do five years ago. So there's a lot more opportunity for sure. You know, it's funny because you're saying something that ironically, because we're from Miami, we just mentioned it. It seems almost like eventually the streamers are going to take 
more of a telenovela model versus an HBO model where it's just we need to churn out constant amounts of content whether or not the quality suffers or not. And there's going to be a drop, I think, to some degree in budgets as well. Right. Because, you know, when Netflix is, you know, putting $50 billion or whatever it is into their content, it's something not far from that number. Um, you know, and, you know, Apple's planning on putting in $4 billion towards their content. Well, at one point, these companies are going to say, well, we need to do a lot more, but we can't afford to put in you know, $10 million. We can only go up a, a billion more. So, but we got to get we gotta get more content in there. So not just in terms of the dollar amount, but I think in terms of, I think the budgets, we're going to see budgets drop a little bit here and there. Um, you still see, we were talking earlier before we started the podcast about the Irishman and whatever, and they right. spent a ton of money on that project. But those are anomalies. You know, most okay. of the projects and most of the made, you know, most of the movies that they make on those networks are, you know, in the five to ten million dollar range. They're a lot less than what they used to be for theatrical. Right. Even because with, they don't have the theatrical window. Right. They don't have the theatrical right. window. You and know? we did talk about, especially with the Irishman coming out now, you know, they are going to have a, a bigger, you know, theatrical than than, yeah, than any Netflix movie right. Right. and whether people were going to come out to the box office. And whether that was going to, you know, drive some dollars. And that's going to be interesting because Apple wants to adhere to the traditional model of a three-month window. Interesting. So when they start producing content that they actually want to put into the movie theaters to have to, for them to be considered for the for the Oscars, they're going to adhere to the traditional model that motion pictures have always guided themselves by. Huh. So that three that three month window before you get into the DVDs or now into streaming or the whatever streaming, else. Right. Where Netflix the most that they've done is this one on the Irishman, which is one month. Right. So it's it's curious because I think that there's a lot of filmmakers that don't agree with that model the way Netflix wants to do it for those type of films. And I think they're going to garner a lot more support from the bigger producers, the bigger directors in right. the industry if they start pushing that window and making it a little bit of a wider release. And not just New York and L.A. Right. Because yeah. the Irishman is airing, I believe, in New York and L.A., but I don't think it's going to be going anywhere else. I think they said oh. maximum 500 screens. So yeah, it, whether yeah. that means only New York, maybe they'll hit a couple other big cities. Hopefully a few other big markets. Yeah, maybe, maybe Chicago. Maybe they'll do Miami. Maybe. Um, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> maybe. I hope so. I'll, I'll, I'll fly to New York. Right. We'll all be there. I want to yeah. see it on the screen. That's yeah. right. No, and it's true. And because I think that goes back to, you know, and why, you know, Eric, you got into the business, not just because it was a business, but you had a passion for it. And I think for, for sure. particularly for filmmakers that want to do feature length motion pictures, they want to see it on the screen. They want to see it. It's almost like, you know, I hate this, like a religious experience. You want that darkened room. You want the attention, the focus. You want to just have a crowd reaction, not someone in an airport on their headphones <laughs> looking at a, a phone. There's a romance to it to some degree. Yeah, it's like it's certainly. and there's and it's, you know, I think some films just don't like if you would have told me and I had to see this movie I had to see Endgame at home because I n never was able to make it to the movie theater and after I saw it I loved it Avengers Endgame but then I thought Jesus how did I not see this yeah, in the movie see it in theater? a theater right that's right some projects just merit being in a movie theater you know yeah. and it doesn't have to be a spectacle movie I think The Irishman's a perfect movie that you should go see in a movie I, theater I, I do sure that's right you know yeah so there's a lot of those that I'm hoping that they start that they start uh, pushing those windows a little bit further just because I think it'll give 
places like Netflix that cachet that, hey, we're, we're not only doing this on television here and we're making all these great shows, but you can bring us projects that if we think it merits it, we'll take it to the theater and we'll, we'll do a theatrical run and everything else. And for the filmmakers, that's good because at that point right. you can possibly renegotiate your deal maybe you could have some back end you could you know whereas if it's just netflix that's gone that doesn't that's exist right. you're right yeah, you're they, not jordan peele or you're not you know even you know whoever you don't have a, yeah. a huge deal in one of these places right you, the money is just not what it was before you know but to your point you know essentially we're all storytellers one way or the other you right. know um and, uh, and, you know, I've written and I've worked in development for a while, but there are writers and people who are far better than I am at that. But, but I, think, I love a good story. I love a good film. I love a good TV show. And that's why I wanted to do this to begin with. And it was just more of a matter of how do I find the business in it? You know, how can we make money on this? You right. Know? Well, what I wanted to talk about is, you know, kind of put, bringing things full circle. So, you know, we went through your journey and we saw how you worked on many different sets and many different departments mm -hmm. and got a holistic view of the industry. Mm -hmm. So on your day to day or when you did decide to start your company and really move forward, mm -hmm. how much do you feel that development plays into how you're able to bring in your output? It's huge. Um, I think right now, I think a, a, a producer, anyone that really wants to produce and when I say produce, I don't mean line produce. I mean be a producer, really try to find the right projects and, and what have you. I think until you establish, you establish yourself in the industry as a producer that has done X amount of projects that, you know, that you're sought after, that a studio or a network will bring you in because they want you on set, because they want you to be part of, in the room, you know, part of the conversation. I think until you get to that point, um, everything a producer is, is is what they have content wise you know and what they can offer you know um, so I think you know for myself I've the more that I see it the more I understand how critical it is that I have to be reading as often as I can be I have to dig and dig and spend time you know with my assistant trying to find these projects that are hard to find you know right. um, but you know, I have I've bought a number of projects that I'm really excited about. You know, uh, one of them was a project that I found. Uh, the writer was a finalist for the Nichols Fellowship last year, right? And it, uh, the story, you know, the, the premise just resonated with me. And I, I asked, I reached out to the guy. Um, he didn't have an agent. I reached out to him directly, asked him, "Can I see the script?" I, I read it. I loved it, and um, and we're, we're starting to pitch it now hmm. to a couple of different uh, mini studios. Hmm. And uh, we, I optioned the rights to another project of a guy that was a, a Guggenheim fellow that was a fun coming of age, you know, you know, TV series that takes place at a prestigious all white band camp where these, this African American kid and this Latino kid are thrown into the mix as like the token scholarship kids wow. to like be part of the band camp. And all these kids want to do is get laid, play music and have fun. You know? <laughs> That's it. And, uh, and it's a, it, it's a funny premise. The pilot's brilliant. And so uh, a friend of mine introduced me to the writer. Then I was able to connect. We connected, you know, and he liked what I had to say about where I want to take it and what I want to do with it. So we got that recently, like a month ago, we got that option. Um, 
and we have a couple of others and we have another two-part book series we have another book and then we have two books that we're looking at now uh, to, to possibly you know option we we like them internally but we're looking at a couple different things about we try to strategize as much as we can you know as i try to strategize basically as much as i can before i actually move forward with that but i know that you know what gets me in the room is what do i have to offer content wise you know, I think at this point, more than anything, you know, I think that especially because everything I had been doing up until now on the television side, even on the film side, were projects that were brought to me. It wasn't something that I took to someone else. So it's, it. you know, now that we sold something to Disney Plus that we're making into a movie for them next year that we found internally, we liked it, we took it out, they loved it, and they wanted to do it, that... That opens the door to a lot of other opportunities, but at the same time, you have to deliver. You have to find projects that you think are going to resonate with an audience that you know has a strong story, has a strong characters, you know, and and is engaging and entertaining, you know. And it's easier said than done, but I mean, you have to be digging, digging, digging all the time till you find the right stuff. Uh, so I just have this is a two part thing yeah. because you know relationships. Yeah. And this was a big theme of everything that we've been talking about. So you have on one of my favorite shirts, mm. 305 mm-hmm. Original. Yes, sir. Franco Parente. <laughs> yes, sir. I love him. Love him. Yeah. Great guy, too, and great shirts. Yeah. And you know, I know Franco. You know Franco. Yeah. Um, and for me, relationships have been, you know, a, a longstanding thing that has helped me to move through mm. the industry. Yeah. How important are relationships? That's one thing. And then the second thing is it seems like, you know, you have a few different projects on the burners mm. at all times. Yeah. So having a couple of different projects on the burner and then having relationships in the mix. Mm. How does that help? Well, the, the the thing, I guess, in my in my instance is um, which made it very difficult. And it's still hard to this day is um I started out in the industry and I didn't have uh, a godfather. I didn't have someone to introduce me to people. I didn't have I didn't have any relationships in the industry. Um, so everything I did was cold calling and knocking on doors and just trying to be persistent. And um, you know, when I finally started working in the commercial world, I didn't know anyone in the TV world. So I was trying to get into the TV world, and it was cold calling, being persistent, knocking on doors, and it's. And that's hard, man. That gets tiring after a while. And there's, look, there's plenty of days I think everybody is a producer. Um, no matter how successful you've been, um, you always, there's always days where you have doubt. There's always days where you doubt yourself. There's always days where you're like, man, am I doing this right? Am I, am, did I reach out to the right people for this? Should I have sent it to these people and not these people instead first? And should I have gone out to this actor? Maybe I should have gone out to this one first instead because now this one's got this new movie coming out and maybe I should have leveraged that. And it's it's easy to, to doubt yourself and it's easy when you're trying to move up in the industry when you don't have those relationships. Um, and uh, so I think the relationships, you know, are huge. Like I was just talking to a director right now in L.A. yesterday. That's a good friend of mine that is super talented. And he's directed a couple of features and he's directed a ton of music videos and what have you. 
and I was listening to him and he doubts himself and, and he doubts things also that he's doing and what have you. And I think it's a universal thing in our world where, and I, you know, and I mentioned to him, look, man, you need to keep, just keep networking. You know, you have so many events you can go to, whatever event you can go to and you can meet someone, you know, it's important to do it. Like I never thought, I really never thought that reading for Panamax films and Ben, you know, 13 years ago, you know, we're not working on anything together yet, but we will be. And, uh, and we have mutual friends in the industry and I was with him last week. I was chatting with him when I was in LA and, and, uh, and for anyone that thought back then when I was doing that, well, you're just volunteering. You're not making any money. Why are you even doing this? Well, I kept thinking, well, this is somebody that's working, that's successful. He's a good guy. He's a decent guy. I, I, I want to meet him, you know, and I want to see if I could offer anything, you know, to help him you know, in his world. And strangely enough, I was able to do that. And so, you know, those relationships are key um, in our industry. I think more than any other industry in our world, uh, I think relationships are so critical to anyone moving forward. But I don't think that you have to have an agent to get something done. You know, um, I have a manager and I have an agent, but now, but I didn't when I got the property from Disney Plus. And I didn't have one when I got it to them, you know? Right. So um, it's it helps. And any opportunity, I would tell anybody listening, any opportunity you get to network at an event, to meet people, um, to just, you know, if you if you if you're a filmmaker, if you're a writer, director, producer, and you have projects in mind you want to pitch, have as many things as you can have going on from a development standpoint. Because you never want to be in a meeting where you pitch a project and they're like, well, but, you know, we, we did something similar to that or we, we saw something similar to that. Well, what else do you have? Right. You don't want to be the uh moment. Exactly. <laughs> right. You don't want to right. be the guy who doesn't have anything else. Right. Um, but, but I think that you, you have to grind. You, you have to form those relationships. Stick yourself out there. Take those risks. Um and you have to do things oftentimes that you don't want to do. Uh, plenty of times I, I was taking out the garbage on set and I'm like, what am I doing? Right. <laughs> at 33. You know, right. at 33. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, but you know what? This is what, I'm, this is what a PA does. So when I need to hire PAs, that's one of the many things they have to do, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's right. funny enough, I'll, I'll, I'll say this one quick thing. I had my son, um, who's in, in college now, working on my show on Frankie. And I had him working in the, in the props department. And uh, he wanted to be in the talent department. He wanted to be, you know, in other departments with the D, with the DP and with the AD. I'm like, let's go work in props. And he spent two days taking the laminate off of these cards because we had a trick with these the, these playing cards that we had to pile up into a pyramid and they wouldn't stick because of the laminate. And he spent two days scrubbing the laminate <laughs> off these cards, and he was just hating it. And I'm like, hey man, that's sometimes what you have to do. Yeah, yeah. Like, but you know what? It's important that you learn those things now because if you're a producer one day you'll understand what someone in the props department might have to go through to get something done and you might be able to feel their pain when they're stressed out or where they're you know they're behind the eight ball or they're tight financially or whatever the case is you got to put yourself in those shoes 
So the one thing I'm grateful for is that I, I had to put myself in all those shoes because I didn't have another option. I would have liked to have done it another way. <laughs> what a way to wrap that up. But but you know what? Yeah, that was essentially his Mr. Miyagi moment. <laughs> yeah. Where later he'll be like, oh, that's why I painted the fence. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, and and it works, man. It works, and it's it's a great industry. It's fulfilling, and we're lucky to be doing what we do. Well, I have one last question. Yeah. Just tying it back to the 305 shirt. You know, now with your success in the industry, you know, why not? make it easier on yourself by moving it to LA why why stick it out in Miami you know I don't want to I, I to me it's important to to keep working here to me it pisses me off to no end that we don't have a film incentive in this state on a state like ours that offers such great crew such fantastic and unique locations and most places in the country can't offer you know um, the fact that Miami-Dade County has been able to get something done was fantastic you know thanks to Sandy Leiterman and the other folks there but for me, I'm based here. I'm Cuban to my core, you know, and uh, my family's rooted here. And I feel like I can't say that I pick a project because, hey, I have to do it in Miami because I owe it to Miami. Um, it, you, you can't. I, I can't. Th- I can't have that kind of narrow approach either when I'm looking for materials or whatever. But at the same time. You know, part of me feels like this is a great place to be. And I don't think that I need to be in L.A. permanently to be successful. And uh, I've been able to have some level, some small baby level of success so far. Not anywhere near where I want to be yet. But I know that I can do it here. And I know when I need to travel, I travel. And when I can stay here, I stay here. But I, I think that it's important... Here, there's too many good people here. There's a lot of good filmmakers here. There's a lot of talented writers here. There's a lot that we can do here. And I think that when we get that incentive back, because I really do think it's when. I don't think it's an if. I do think it's a when. Um, we're going to have just another flood of projects coming this way. And I want to be here for it, as we all do. Right, on the ground. I have a um, two-part, hmm? because we always do this at the end of every interview. Oh, cool. And the two-part is... What advice mm-hmm. would you give someone that wants to get into the industry? Mm-hmm. Sometimes they say young, but it could be 33, it could be 35, it could be 50. Yeah. And then what advice, I guess, in this point, would you give your 33-year-old self? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> my 33-year-old self... Um, getting into the industry. <laughs> getting into the industry. I, I maybe would tell him not to do it. I don't know at that point. Uh, it's, it's such a challenge, and it's, you know, it's... It's, a, it's such a difficult industry to grow in, but at the same time, I think that when you're passionate about it, and if you're passionate about telling stories and about you know getting projects off the ground and bringing these, these books, these screenplays to life, there's nothing more fulfilling when you're done with it and people respond in a positive way and you see the reactions in a the movie theater, you see the ratings on your show come in, you know, the next day or the day after that, you know, and how, you know, how they had this much of a share and how kids are loving it and how they're writing about it online. And it's just, um, it's hard to explain until you're doing it, but, but there really, for me, there isn't anything I can think of that would be more fulfilling for me. So, um, I, I would tell my 33 year old self to save more money and to be patient and maybe to have not built a pool and a couple of other things a few years ago, but no, I'm just kidding. But I mean, I think you need to be frugal 
and you need to be really cognizant of your of your situation financially because there's ebbs and flows, you know, in our industry. Um, and with a kid, I think that's graduating from college or going out, what I would recommend more than anything is is they have to just try to get their foot in the door. It doesn't matter the job necessarily that you're taking at X company, but make sure that X company is the right company. X company is a really good company. It's a growing company. It's a promising company. Um, it's surrounded by people who are very talented and very successful because you can be just the peasant in the room. But if you show that you're willing to put the time in and you're willing to work hard and you're willing to grind and you're at a good place, you'll grow. You know, and you'll make relationships, whether it'll lead to something at that company or it might lead to an opportunity somewhere else at another company. But I think that it, people get too stuck on, oh, I need to be, you know, I need to graduate film school and be directing right away. Well, no, you don't. You need to be the minion on set that is, you know, not really doing anything and uh, and just learning and just watching and just your time will come, but you just got to be willing to grind, you know, and work hard for it. So, um, I think that's what I would tell any of, any of these kids coming out now. Well, I love it. That's great. The 305 is all about the grind. That's some so, heat. Unfortunately, yeah. man, that's the way it is <laughs> here, dude. I want to thank Eric Gennard for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Okay, we are back. Yes. That was a great interview. Eric, like I said, he gave it heart and soul. He gave it. He is... He's our little Bob Evans over here. He's just, <laughs> he wants to, st- he's, he wanted to stay in the picture and he did. <laughs> I don't know if I would have come up with that allegory, but <laughs> I guess you could say that. Yeah. But man, Eric what a gave it all up mm. to start as a PA at 31. Can you imagine? No. It's never too late. Never too late. You always just got to find your passion, as they say. Yeah, and he is doing it, man. Ah, oh, he is. You know, we kind of talk behind the scenes about other stuff that he has going on. and A lot going on. Yeah. He is taking advantage of the streaming wars, that's for sure. And he's doing it from the 305. Yes, that's important. And I think we always try to highlight that when, when our industry folks live here, work here, are trying to make it work here. They're making it work. And are making he's it He's making work. it work on, on, on a high level. Yes, on an industry high level. And so I think that's important. I think we need to champion more of these individuals and these organizations that are doing this kind of thing. Absolutely. We have to have Eric back. Yes, there has to be. In the next couple of few months. That's a part two for sure. Yes. So yeah, let's see. Let's see where he's at next time. But yeah, going back to to our discussion, I wanted to get back into a little bit of, of the Warner Media stuff because it seems that there are limits. HBO had originally decided to launch two prequels to the Game of Thrones franchise. One, I believe, was set about a thousand years before what we just finished seeing. Was it a thousand years? Was it, yeah, the, the age of man, the dawn of man, the thing yeah. of the man with the men, and man the first men, and the whatever <laughs> right. men. Uh, Naomi Watts was attached to Star. They shot the pilot. They were getting ready to ramp up for the series, and HBO said, nope, we're going to shut it down in favor of another prequel that will be full on, got a full series order, House of the Dragon. Which is all about the Targaryens. Targaryens. The Targaryens. That one. (laughs) (laughs) All about the Targaryens. So that's going to be, I think that takes place 300 years before what we just finished seeing. So, yeah. Yeah, well, I think a lot of these deals were in place before Mm AT&T. And so once AT&T 
purchased what was then Time Warner. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of the deals just kind of got shook up. Things certainly got shook up because the president of HBO out, uh, TNT, TBS, those presidents gone. Yeah. So. But I have to think I I kind of agree with this executive decision uh, only because, you know, why would you want to hedge your bets with two prequels? Why not just launch one at a time? Mm -hmm. See how this first one does, which, you know, it's it's a strong one because this one actually was co-created by the the novel writer. You know, uh, George R.R. Martin is a co-creator of this prequel. Yeah. And they're also bringing back another veteran from the uh, original series, Miguel Sapochnik, who will direct the pilot and a few other episodes. That's really good, man. You like the Miguel Sapochnik? Yeah, I didn't get Targaryen, <laughs> but I nailed Miguel Sapochnik. Wow, spot on. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, there's a lot of other things happening. And you think about, you know, the way these shakeups happen and the way things are distributed. Jen Locke which is an animated series that debuted on Adult Swim, they've been renewed for a second season. Now, this is a show with Michael B. Jordan, Dakota Fanning. It's a pretty big deal in terms of the talent. Right. And it's spearheaded, actually, by Michael B. Jordan. Hmm. It's picked up for a second season, but it's picked up by HBO Max. Right. So that's interesting to see the way things are shifting and it feels like that shift from the linear cable service to the streaming is also this part of the battle. You know, that's an underlining part of the battle. Right. You have the streaming wars with these big media conglomerates battling each other. But you also have this transition and shift from linear cable. Right. To the streaming services. And yeah, these sort of all these sort of internal decisions that have to be made between the various the internal decisions that have to be made by the various departments and brands within these major media companies. Yeah. So it's going to be very interesting to see how all of this shakes out. But but I, I'm excited. I'm excited about the prequel to Game of Thrones, the one they did actually green light. Ryan Condal's the co-creator, and uh, he's going to co-show run with Sapochnik. And then you're going to have, it seems, a, a lot of invar- uh, involvement by, by Martin. Yeah. So that's going to be exciting. You know what? I want to work with Sapochnik. Yes, just because his name is so cool. His so like, cool name. Yeah. Just imagine that. Sharply and Shapotnik. Sharply and Sapotnik. <laughs> Sharply and that's 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 hard for the receptionist. Sharply Shapotnik. <laughs> that's a Game of Thrones in itself. That is. Yes. You have to have good alliteration skills. Yeah, but I am. I'm excited about it, too. And I think, you know, off of the big success of Game of Thrones, of course, the two orders probably came because Game of Thrones, the juggernaut that it is, mm. precipitated a Game of Thrones push. Yes. But going with one I think is the way to go I agree with you 100% on yeah that. I think you really gotta I mean that's such a huge investment on Warner's part that they they kind of have to see where this initial prequel especially because you know the, the the last series of Game of Thrones ended with a bit of controversy a lot of fans were not happy oh that's right with how the series ended and you know there's been a lot of buzz on the internet about how the creators are now slowly starting to come out and say maybe they they didn't have this all planned out as well (laughs) as they probably should have and maybe they got even got in a little over their heads yeah but you could see that you know it 
was such a stratospheric rise that or a stratospheric success. It was that. How can how can you? I mean, one of the biggest shows in history. You know, how can you prepare for something like that? If not the biggest, particularly for HBO. And so, yeah. But I think, you know. At the very least, it looks like they faked it pretty well the first four seasons or five. <laughs> well, I think well, well, they had enough content for the first four seasons. They did. I, and I think, yeah, maybe is when they started to sort of go off book that they started to run into a little bit of, of trouble. They didn't have the source material as much to rely on mm-hmm. and, you know, normal things. But I think, you know, in the totality of the series, what these two gentlemen created was special, was spectacular. You know, whether or not you agreed with certain decisions in the last season or not, I think that what they laid the groundwork for, the sort of epic franchise television series in this amazing universe is just really, really fascinating. Yeah. Well, I can tell you something. And going back to HBO, one of the most exciting shows for me right now is Watchmen. I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it? Nope. Another show you got to see. Yeah, it's too much stuff on my list. <laughs> we have to kind of meet in the middle, man. Yeah. Well, some I saw, of this stuff. I, to be fair, I did see Dolomite. Oh, you did see Dolomite. I, right. see. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen that. Yes. But, um, you know, what I'm excited about in terms of, you know, what's happening with Watchmen is, first of all, what's really exciting is it's the most streamed show. It's the most streamed show for HBO since Westworld. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's a pretty big hit. Yeah. It's doing its thing. And it's also great to see Regina King kick ass. Oh, yes. So on the strong, dramatic roles, she kicks ass with emotion. Mm. To see her kicking ass physically in this show is amazing. This is a woman that can do it all. And she's doing it. She is doing it all. And, you know, I'm a big fan of one of the creators, Damon Lindelof who harkens back to Lost, but also The Leftovers, right? which is a show I really loved. And you can feel a lot of these tentacles and a lot of these, you know, cross stories and, you know, really the way that he builds his storytelling process within The Watchmen. So it's exciting both in that physical sense, historical references, and in this kind of push out of the story itself, that is a show that definitely I think is going to be a big hit, not only with the viewers, which it already is, but critically. I think that we're going to hear a lot critically from Watchmen. So, oh, yeah. Watch the Watchmen. There you go. My friend. We always got to be watching. Yep. There's way too many things to watch out there, but it's exciting. Yeah. It has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. That's a good score. It's a huge score. That is. uh, So when you have, you know, that critical praise and you have the viewers, you got a hit. You got something. Yep. You got something. And Don Johnson bringing it back. He's a star of The Watchmen. Yeah. Maybe he'll bring Miami Vice back. Didn't you hear about the talks? I heard about the rumors. Rumors Throwing ideas around, I think, was the <laughs> industry jargon. That is what he said. But you know when we hear that. Yeah. Next thing you know. That'd be fantastic. We'd love to have Don Johnson in here talking about the old Miami Vice, maybe a new Miami Vice. Let's get him. Mr. Johnson, if you are listening to this podcast, we would love to invite you on our show. You know, his son, Jesse Johnson, did voiceover for my project, The Beach Chronicles. So when are we inviting Jesse and Don to come and talk? We got to have them together. Yeah. Father-son chat. I like it. (laughs) We're calling out. We're making the calls. Kevin's making the people. As soon as we're off the off the podcast, 
There you go. So we're still going to be in this realm. Wow, man, we are giving Warner Media a big, big shout. Sponsorships are available. <laughs> but our guest for next week is actually someone that works for Warner Media from Adult Swim, Mr. Mark McRae. Mark McRae. Animation specialist. He has a book. His book is called The Best Saturdays of Our Lives, and it chronicles the history of animation on TV, all the shows, the biggest shows, the studios, and the evolution. So he's really like an animation historian. Animation historian, expert. Wow. He has encyclopedic knowledge of the entire part of the industry. Wow. So Mark actually started at Cartoon Network Mm. in 2005, and then he moved to Adult Swim, where he works now. So just imagine that animation expertise that historical animation expertise and then you know animation within the present day which is you know adult swim and now the evolution of that now the announcement with hbo max and what they're doing happened after the interview that we did with mark mccray but certainly you're going to want to tune in and listen especially if you're someone who loves animation and this is not just the TV animation, but also he has this encyclopedic knowledge of the movies. So tune in. You're going to get a treat for this one. And I would say buy his book, too. A hundred percent. But, you know, this one was chock full and also a lot of industry knowledge as well. Mm-hmm. So this is one that's, you know, good for industry people, but also just anyone, you know, that loves these things. So. Spent many a morning with the cartoon and the cereal on the Saturday morning. That was yes. That was our must-see TV growing up. Yes, and then you also see a lot of the same patterns. Yeah. So you see the patterns from then and what made things successful then, and then moving through the '90s into the 2000s, a lot of the same patterns repeat themselves. Right. Yeah, and that's in animation, but also that's in media in general. Sure. So you're gonna want to tune in for that. Let's do it. Until then. We are going to sign off. I am your co-host, JL Martinez, along with Kevin Sharpley. And this is the one, the only, Screen Heat Miami. 305. Like, subscribe, and share. Boom. All platforms, Google Play, Apple, of course, SoundCloud. SoundCloud. Where we started. Shout out to SoundCloud. Where, yeah, where it all started. And yeah, so we're, we're up there. We're on Spotify as well. Boom. Boom.